Today begins the most solemn time of the year for Christian people. Since the liturgical renewal about 45 years ago, we have restored these ancient rites of Holy Week to our common worship life. It's always difficult to preach during the, these great days and seasons because, in my own view, the liturgy is self-explanatory. You don't have to go into a deep explanation about it, but you can't escape preaching either because it's required. And so it's something that is necessary to do. We should remind ourselves of something that I learned in seminary, Baumstark's Law. Anton Baumstark was a German liturgical scholar who lived in the early part of the 19th century, and he wrote a lot about the worship of the early church, and he had a maxim, which was at the most holy and solemn times of the church year, the most ancient rites are observed. So what we do, are doing today, and what we'll, we will be doing through this week, particularly for the three sacred days, Maundy, Thursday, Good Friday, and the Great Vigil of Easter is very old, and it goes way back to certainly the first 300 years of Christian worship. So it's an honor and a privilege to preside at these liturgies, which are very old. How do we know how that all happened? Well, I've told you about somebody who helped us out a lot, a woman pilgrim from Gaul who went on a pilgrimage to Jerusalem. Her name was Egeria, and she kept a diary, and she wrote down what she observed in Jerusalem when she was there during Holy Week and at other times on her pilgrimage back. So a lot of what we do is from Egeria or versions uh, of what Egeria described in about 340 A.D., I have her book, Egeria's Travels. You can get it. It's kind of fun to read if you're interested in these things. What I want to do, though, this morning is to say some things about the, the, the passion gospel that we read to you and uh, to then say something that has been on my mind for the last two or three years, and I've mentioned it in sermons, both on Palm Sunday and on Good Friday, and that is a tendency amongst... Uh, some people, and certainly some of my clerical colleagues, to avoid reading these passion narratives because they believe that they're just too tough. They just focus on suffering and torture and violence, and how can anybody be a part of a religion that's going to do that? Well, you know, this is not a new thing because uh, H. Richard Niebuhr, who was a famous theologian in the United States. He was Reinhold Niebuhr's brother uh, in a, a, a short book he wrote in 1937. He said, you know, some of these people would like a God without wrath, bought human beings without sin, into a kingdom without judgment, through the ministrations of a Christ without a cross. So, you know, you know me, I'm not playing this stuff up much during the year. But from time to time, it does have to come up. So I want to say some things about maybe the legitimate sources of objection about this based upon a certain strain of Christianity which is sought to revel in uh, the violence and the suffering and the torture and the death 
and we need to get a correct view of what that means in order to help us through this. There are four Gospels in the New Testament, and each one of them has a passion narrative. In fact, the passion narratives are probably the earliest piece of Gospel writing that we possess, and the other material in the Gospels was attached to them. So the stories that were written originally were the stories of Jesus' passion and death and resurrection. And they don't all agree. And I've said to you before that the early Christians who put together the canon of the New Testament knew that they did not agree and they were okay with it. They knew they were different because each passion narrative has its own tone and its own theological import. I read uh, when I looked this up this week, they said each gospel has its own timber or tambra, I guess is the right way to speak about that, like an instrument. You know, a violin sounds different than a trumpet. So that's what they meant. They have a different tone. And today, Matthew emphasizes the royalty of Christ, the royalty of Jesus. And in some ways, it's most signified by his uh, coming in triumphantly, triumphantly into Jerusalem, the sign over the cross that says, this is the king of the Jews, a number of other kingly references that are made in Matthew's gospel. But the paradox is that here's a king who is humiliated and is not like we would normally think about kings. Humility on one level as a positive trait is knowing yourself. That's certainly what the writers of the spiritual life speak about when they use that term, that you and I in some way are to cultivate a certain species of humility as we live, which is self-knowledge. It isn't somehow the abject groveling theory of humility. But sometimes some of us go through things where we are humiliated by other people. And so today this is a story about that and about how through this process of humiliation we see triumph and that the power of God's presence is always there for us even in the midst of our own humiliation and demoralization and somehow uh, that we have reached an incomprehensible situation in our lives that we have no idea how to extricate ourselves from. You know, these things are what, what the early Christians wrote about in the gospel witness and in their own life together in, in their common life. That what we saw here is going to help us as we live our lives and go through difficult times. That's one of the connections that they're going to be able to make about this. So in the gospel, we have the royalty of Christ. Also, Judas hanging himself only appears in Matthew's gospel. And that story about all the tombs opening up and so on, that only appears in Matthew's gospel. And if you want me to explain all that to you, I can't. <laughs> so we'll just uh, let that alone at this particular point. About three or four years ago, one of my colleagues said that they simply on Palm Sunday that year, they were not going to read the Passion Gospel. They just couldn't take it anymore. They thought it was a terrible, weird story, and they just didn't think people ought to uh, have to listen to all that. 
Well, notwithstanding the fact that I don't think that we have the right to do that in terms of the liturgical expression of the church's life, and maybe we'll, we'll even get deep down into the rubrics of the Book of Common Prayer, but be that as it may, it's an attitude that's around, isn't it? That people are uh, upset about all this kind of violence and they just don't like it. Luke Timothy Johnson, who is a a New Testament scholar that I like a lot, wrote uh, in the Oxford Companion to Christian Thought, just as the cross confounded ancient Jews and Greeks by contradicting their conventional wisdom about God, so does it remain an obstinate challenge to every age that seeks to identify God's rule with human comfort. This event has something to do with human pride and smugness and the belief that they could, in fact, control circumstances that were beyond their control. And the killing of Jesus, uh, the, the crucifying of Jesus, had to do with how we are capable of killing that which is the finest and the best. And everybody has known about how to do that in big and small ways as we, as we have lived our lives. So it focuses our attention on some uncomfortable issues. You know, uh, the most significant thing in Matthew's gospel uh, that distinguishes it in the passion narratives between the others are Jesus' words on the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? They were so offensive to John and Luke that they changed them. This is the oldest saying in the passion narratives that has a claim, and we would say in biblical scholarship, to be an authentic saying of Jesus. On, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So for those of you who believe that Jesus walked six inches off the ground during his earthly ministry, and even though it sort of gives us the indication in some of the gospel witness that he was marching from one event to the next, the outcome to which he absolutely knew, it wasn't so. On the first Sunday of Lent every year, we read about the temptation of Christ. And this year we read Matthew's version of the temptation of Christ. And I mentioned to you that Father Thomas Keating says these temptations for Jesus as for all of us uh, revolve around the three energy centers of our irrational programs for happiness. Security and survival, affection and esteem, and power and control. And that these temptations that the Savior went through and overcomes in the desert and then moves now to embrace his earthly ministry and its shape and form will have to face them again and again. And we saw that today even in the garden where he is asking God to release him from this responsibility and this outcome. And now he's on the cross and he really feels like he's been abandoned. I suspect some of us in very dark moments when we have felt some species of incomprehensible demoralization that we have certainly felt that in our own lives. And so when Jesus does that, he now identifies 
in absolute terms with the human condition. And so it's worth at least reflecting on from time to time in the most solemn and holy time of the year what that might mean. Now, I mentioned to you that there may be a reason why some people have such a difficulty with what is described in the gospel about the passion of Christ. Some years ago now, there was a movie that was released by Mel Gibson called The Passion of the Christ. Some of you may have seen it. It is horrific. And you need to know that the scenes that were in The Passion of the Christ don't appear in the gospel. They're in none of the passion narratives. This violence and the condition of the Jesus of the passion of the Christ nowhere appears in the gospel record. Do you know where Mel Gibson got this? He got this from the fevered imagination of a German nun named Anne Catherine Emmerich who lived in the late 18th and early 19th century and wrote down her visions of the passion of Jesus, how she imagined it in a vision. She is a great favorite among ultra-traditionalist Roman Catholics, of which Mel Gibson is one. And so he has given people to understand, I guess, those who were gullible, that that must have been what Jesus really went through in the most horrific kind of way. Well, as my Old Testament professor in seminary said, you can believe that if you want to. Now, here's the other side of it, too. The reaction against that is legitimate. But we also live in a culture that believes in the quick fix. Religion, politics, psychotherapy, medicine are all of the important systems of salvation that you and I are part of. And most of the time what we're looking for when we go through a difficult patch is uh, symptom relief. Now, I'm saying this to you now in a very cavalier fashion, but when I'm in a great deal of pain or discomfort or something, I want to take all the money out of the bank that I have and give it to the doctor and say, please get rid of this symptom now. Right? But there are other kinds of difficulty and pain that we suffer that sometimes becomes we become aware that we have to do some hard work in order to get beyond this. And most of us really don't want to. Most of us would prefer to uh, be able to find some way uh, for a quick fix. But the alienation and the separation and all of those kinds of things uh, from God uh, has been triumphed over by the Savior. That's why he's the pioneer and the perfecter of our faith. We can preach a sermon like this, or I can, because I know how it comes out. We start this on Palm Sunday, and we're reminding ourselves as we go through this week how it's going to come out. That the pioneer and the perfecter of our faith has been there uh, everywhere that we are and is with us no matter what. In our, at our baptism, what Jesus Christ is by nature, we become through adoption and grace. And by virtue of that, we now in some way unite ourselves with the suffering of Christ 
because we're uniting our suffering with his and we know that that suffering has been triumphed over and that that constitutes for us the Christian hope. And if nothing else, that's what we give thanks for on this Palm Sunday. Amen.